And we're at a moment where sort of all all contradictions are heightened, right? Byproduct of the crisis of contemporary capitalism. This week in class politics. Classic fucking boomer. Old new left. Maintaining the relations of neoliberalism. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! Capital. No! 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 Ideas are international, but we're from Canberra. The place where anything can happen but normally doesn't is one of my favourite expressions. And yes, things have been happening. Over the past month in the ACT, I and um, most of people in Canberra didn't see this coming. And what we're talking about today is the anti-vaccination protest that happened this month on this episode of Dole Capital. My name is Ben. On this episode, Jacob and I welcome back our dear friend of the show and comrade Amy Haddad who was just as annoyed as many a local to see the book fair and regional farmers market cancelled due to protesters camped out at Canberra's Exhibition Park before being booted. But first, this show wouldn't be possible without our patrons and supporters. You can donate at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot C-O-M forward slash D-O-H-K-A-P-I-T-A-L. So that's patreon.com forward slash adult capital one word please like share and subscribe to our show and leave a review on your preferred podcast application as usual we're coming to you today from Ngunnawal country and uh, we'd like to express our solidarity with uh, aboriginal elders past present and emerging um, and also our solidarity with uh, aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are continuing to fight against uh, ongoing injustices for their peoples welcome Amy and Jacob how are we going today I'm fabulous, thank you. Fantastic. So two weekends ago, uh, we had a fairly large protest at Parliament House, Ten to 15,000 people after a couple of weeks of rather disruptive uh, protest actions and random acts of hassling mm. locals, or well, in particular local retail and hospitality workers and workers in the parliamentary triangle. What was, what was this all about and what can the left learn from it? Mm. Amy, we'll just... What do you think? Well, just quickly, what it was about. It was ostensibly an anti-vaccine protest. And, and mandate, I and think. It yeah. Sort of, it was never super clear, yeah. though, was it? It was just, no. it was getting out there and protesting, possibly for the sheer joy of it. Yep. Was that well, I saw part a great of sense? Uh, phrase used, I think this might have been Cam Wilson's phrase in uh, Crikey Protestival. Mm. Uh, that that was a really there was a vibe, vibe, wasn't there? It was there. very vibes based. Yeah. I yeah. did as as a long term Canberran feel that it had a little bit of a warm up for the folk festival vibe, oh, per- yeah. perhaps. Yeah. And, and then when they relocated to Epic, I'm going maybe they're just warming that up yeah. uh, for us. I will say though, I feel like possibly our Canberra standings in the livability index may have dropped significantly when they cancelled the book fair and the uh, farmers market. Yeah, I mean, what was even the point? <laughs> yeah, like. This is, this is the whole point for being in camera, and yeah. yet here we were with none of that oh, stuff. Um, with the book fair, I, I, that was interesting. The, the outcry in the ACT was quite uh, interesting. It was very Canberran to be upset about the book fair being cancelled. It's a and, bit of an institution. Yeah, and, and the farmer's market. Mm. Uh, I, I do think what was interesting about that was also the way in which the, the local government then between $700,000 being raised by the local community, um, donated to Lifeline that runs the book fair, uh, which is a mental health crisis hotline thing. Um, you also had the farmer's market, like huge amount of support for local regional producer, um, producers and supporters there. I guess the whole thing was that that protest crossed the line and 
the line was literally really hassling the sort of normal I guess activities that happen in the ACT we're quite used to mm. having protests in Canberra it's pretty normal um, it, and it should happen more often that's a good thing um, but what was happening was something out at uh, particularly at the exhibition park site something a bit more than just a we're turning up to go and protest up at Parliament House it was a lot more in your face yeah. with all sorts of pretty horrible stories about um yeah, really random acts of, of hassling and aggression. Yeah. Retail workers and hospitality workers in the inner north had all sorts of really terrible stories there. And I guess in terms of who who are these people and why were they here is what we need to talk about first. Yeah, well, maybe we can start off um, by addressing the fact that this was a bit of a flow-on protest from what's happened in Ottawa, the uh, capital city of Canada, where a big sort of convoy of truckers but also caravans... Um, small cars all kinds of people um, have driven into the city and kind of blockaded it for a couple of weeks um, right in the CBD um, and to that point you were making earlier about the interactions between the, the protesters from outside of the city and the sort of ordinary especially sort of frontline workers here I think similar to Ottawa there's a perception of the Canberran population is like closely associated with the federal government because of it being a big public public service town in Australia and this is the location of most of the federal government departments um, in Australia, I think, what they the, the Australian Public Service makes up like thirty percent of the whole Australian uh, Canberra workforce, something like that. Um, so uh, that's where some of that hostility might come from, I suppose. And then also there's the fact that Canberra are a, a bunch of real kind of rules lovers, and that we've taken uh, COVID restrictions pretty much in stride. And there's you know still like very high support for mass mandates and, and things, even though now they are actually starting to be um, taken away by the ACT government. Um, most restrictions are now pretty much gone, um, with exceptions in things like cancer wards and um, high-risk venues, stuff like that. Um, as to like who, who these people are, um, it seems to be a real motley mix. Um, we've obviously had um, plenty of coverage by people like um, Tom Tanuki and uh, Cam Wilson in Crikey about the sovereign citizen aspects, of course. And um, like in Canada and Australia, we've got this um, small fringe element of people who have these kind of pseudo-legal ideas about our constitution and the the construction of the government and its legitimacy, um, which, like in everything, there's this little grain of truth, um, I suppose, to you know, the legitimacy of a implanted colonial government and, um, and all of this, but ultimately their um, understanding of how power works and how power is, where it's based, is all a, little, a little skewed and results in, you know, these videos of people citing non-existent or spurious legal statutes and um, giving, you know, cops a real um, furrowed brow. <laughs> so... That's one element. We've got the sovereign, so, um, the sovereign citizens. Um, and then I suppose we've got the uh, anti-vax slash anti-mandate crowd. Um, what do you think the basis of that group is, Amy? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I just want to step back a little bit before we dive into that. Um, and just a, a quick reflection on the quite sort of brand Canberra reaction mm. to... Uh, I, I guess the coalition of identities that made up that protest and, and it was really easy to get on board with that and it was really easy to say oh you silly billies <laughs> Parliament, old Parliament House is just not even a Parliament House what are you doing there and we don't make those rules and oh you duffers and I, I think it was quite easy for us to 
really put a veneer of um, sort of intellectual disdain over it and therefore not ask this critical question that we're asking now. So I think it's good that we're asking this question, who, who is this group or who, who are these groups and, and why, are, why are they there? Um, so you mentioned the, the anti-vaxxers and the anti-mandate mm. folk. And, I mean, the irony there is extreme, as you've said, Canberra, the most vaccinated city in the world at one point, very compliant uh, as a population, probably a very high level of appreciation for good policy and evidence base and all of those excellent things. So it was a bit bemusing to see that take shape here. And I think it was bemusing because why? What are they seeking to get traction on here? And we heard them say, oh, well, we want Scott Morrison to stop the mandates. Mm-hmm. And he's going, I don't hold a mandate, mate, um, which, you know, in this case is accurate. Right. Um but I, I also got the sense that somewhere sitting underneath this were people who were just a bit, um, or not a bit, probably quite disgruntled, um, probably significantly disadvantaged by what's rolled out over the pandemic, looking for some form of uh, control or somewhere to put their anxiety about that. So I wonder whether they're fully anti-mandate uh, or whether, this is, whether this, there are subgroups of people who are just like, Something bad has happened in my yeah. life because of the because of this, and here's an opportunity for me to let off some steam yeah. about that. Because I wasn't hearing a lot of coherence, and when you looked at their demands to the extent that they ever released some demands, um, some of them were no mandates, and some of them were um, fully informed parental consent for vaccines. It's like I don't understand how these things go together. Yeah. Also, that second one already the law. So it just, it felt like, I don't know, I'm sure there's a word for it. As a parent, it had had a real toddler vibe (laughs) where toddlers get upset because their toast is cut the wrong way, Mm. but actually they're probably upset about something else and they're just taking it out on the toast. And it's now been essentially dissolved, I suppose. Um, The Canberra show is coming up and the the Bobbies did move in to to clear out the the showground uh, in preparation for that. And other than a few um, holdouts going to sort of camping camping mm. grounds around Canberra, like uh, over at the Cotto and things like that, it seems that they're largely dispersed and promising to return uh, in late March, uh, I think. So, yeah, look, I, I think Amy's right there in terms of I mean that background there. It is it is a new and interesting manifestation, and I think um, look, there's going to be some people who are going to write some very good articles. It's already already happened. Um, plenty of university people are going to have a great time looking at the. Sociology and the politics of the various groups that, that came together. Um, we, we know it's fairly clear, based from our experience in Victoria, that there's an amalgam of, of different groups and interests that are coming um, that have come together around um, anti-vaccination mandates. Uh, and we know that there um, there are definitely right-wing opportunists who have, have hitched their flag to these sort of protests, whether it's been in Victoria or this this national protest that recently happened in Canberra. And we also understand from some commentators, some serious um, lookers, that the far right have, have opportunistically tried to motive, um, be involved and uh, get their um, view of the world also attached. But we also know that there's some other quite damaged people as well that's been commented on, um, people who have been... Um, uh, survivors of, of, of child and, and domestic violence abuse um, but there's also you know we've got the sovereign citizen thing as well mm-hmm. so it is very strange that this happens there but I guess the whole thing that for me that comes together is there's obviously uh, what has happened with COVID has been such a, an extreme thing for for everyone to deal with and some people have had 
whether in their own individual perception or collectively had experiences maybe individually where they've become quite alienated Mm -hmm. and angry and then they've become quite radicalized by different views that are out there and they've been mobilized about it and that's what we're seeing today um, recently and they haven't gone away yet they are planning on coming back yeah can I just I want to jump in on that Ben because I think you've raised a, a really important point about I guess traction and and where people put their feelings of frustration or alienation and but but what I would suggest is that actually we're probably seeing frustration that predated COVID um, yep. and and we, we've had this conversation um, my sense is that we've spent a long time in this country normalizing denying science that we've spent a long time in this country saying that it's okay to give an equal platform to people who uh, oppose uh, evidence or, or or who have uh, what are we calling them alternative facts um, and we've also spent you know a good more than 20 years um, poking people's fear of change and poking people's fear of destabilization rather than engaging with it. And we see that a lot around climate change, right? We see that like, I'm going to lose my job, blah, blah, blah. And politically, we've been, and we see it around my immigration as well, right? So politically, we've been exacerbating that, not dealing with it. So this is kind of constant uh, sort of low to medium hum mm. of um, anger and anxiety in an environment where we've kind of made evidence an optional uh, lens for, for all of that. Suddenly, what we've got is a significant crisis, which gives rise to a whole new way of the law being expressed through mandates, through um, rules, through visible compliance with those rules. You know, people can tell if you're not wearing a mask through some pretty significant police powers. Um, and so, suddenly, what you've got is is a focus is is something to give traction to that Mm. dissatisfaction and so i do wonder if we were going to do a venn diagram of people who are immediately disadvantaged and um uh made precarious by the vaccine versus those who are a little bit climate denying wanting to hold on to their old school jobs and those who are bit racist and anti-immigration i wonder how much of that venn diagram turns out to be a bit of a circle Mm. um and that this is just a really um, acute opportunity to come together with and be very specific about it. Yeah. Um, and so that I, I get a strong vibe that, that that's partly what's happening here. I think uh, maybe a good way to conceptualize what at first definitely appears to be a really disparate, really incoherent um, array of, of people is to think about this as a kind of a group that are uh, both produced by and reacting against neoliberalism mm. and the, the the new configurations of the neoliberal state. Um, so maybe looking at Canada, it's a better distilled example than in Australia. Um, you have the Trudeau government, I'd say arguably um, inflicting a collective punishment on uh, a lot of people who haven't been vaccinated at a time when that doesn't really have much of a scientific or um, like evidence-based policy basis because we know that vaccines are no longer stopping the spread of Omicron. They they prevent uh, serious symptoms and reduce your window of infectiousness, but that if you're not vaccinated, um, it's not going to make a huge difference necessarily to how many people you're spreading COVID to if you're sitting in a truck. I would dispute that. Okay. We can have that conversation yeah, separately. Yeah. 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 But basically, uh, like what I see it as is as being a attempt to kind of um, create a discourse of 
blame and collective punishment for people who haven't been vaccinated uh, for the, the stretching out of the pandemic crisis in general. When I'd say that if you wanted to look at uh, the uh, impacts and how that uh, time frame that we're in now has been stretched out, you'd probably be much better to look at incompetence at the state level at the impact of mass privatization of the health system and of the and probably the gigification of the logistics sector as well, which brings us right back into the, the truckers, especially in Canada and also in Australia. So the other aspect, I suppose, that I think um, goes to this point about a kind of new neoliberal produced but also anti-neoliberal reaction um, is the prevalence of kind of anti-communist rhetoric. And I think it's been interesting to look at, we'll come to the sort of le- the left's mm-hmm. analysis and the left's reaction to the whole thing uh, in a moment. But um, I think it's been very common for people on the left to look at that and say, these people cannot be our allies or they need to be written off and called fascist or understood as a broadly right-wing um, or motivated by a kind of right-wing ideology and that's because they espouse anti-communist views. Well, that anti-communist rhetoric that's, that's infused through the thing, especially in Canada, to a lesser extent in Australia, and in Australia it's also combined with xenophobia, obviously, mm-hmm. in our regional context. Uh, but that is a result of... Uh, the Cold War and late Cold War, Cold War rhetoric um, and an understanding of communism as communism equals a kind of authoritarian state system where the state nakedly and brazenly uses its power of force to take away individual liberties and to restrict an individual's ability to gain prosperity, you know, own their own things and, uh, and have a good life. Like that's what we've all been told is what communism is for the last, you know, 60 80 years mm. okay and so then these people who don't have class consciousness they're um you know probably accurately like, a- accurately described as kind of either lumpen bourgeois or um maybe just a kind of yeah inchoate kind of middle class um, with no class consciousness um just see what the neoliberal state does to is doing to them in the form of ex- you know extraordinary powers because of emergencies acts things like that um, and saying, well, this is this is communism. This is, this is what you've been telling us is what communism is for the last 60 years. So clearly, Justin Trudeau is a communist, and that's the basis for, you know, what he's doing. So there's, like, several layers, I'd say, of mystification and ideology in between the use of these terms and the understandings of these ideologies and the real material relations at the basis of like, this small crisis that's just popped up in Ottawa and Canberra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting, and the conflation of communism and authoritarianism is nothing new. <laughs> I think we've been uh, pointing that distinction out for quite some time. And just as you were talking, I was just reflecting on, um, you know, how how easily we translate authoritarianism depending on how we experience it. And I'm thinking of um, the extreme. Uh, uh, application of state power in the name of security, right? Um, after 9-11 and in the name of um, protecting us from terrorists and all that kind of... And that's that's fine until you're white and you experience that mm. and then suddenly it's communism. So, I, like, I wouldn't I wouldn't go crazy looking for coherence here. Um, but I think it's also... And you, you open um, your last little observation there with, you know, who are these, who are these people? And I think it's, it's really important for us to unpack that. Like, I don't think... The these are like a coherent, um, you know, homogenous group of people. And 
the left, indeed, any any um, sort of analytical frame does itself a disservice by assuming some kind of coherence um, across uh, across that group. I think that the thing that's also interesting for me is, you know, on first analysis, this is a very this looks like you know, to the extent that there's a, a commonality across who's turning up to these things, a very individualist um, movement that this is, a, and, and that's that's a very sovereign citizen thing as well. And that's a, that's a very anti-authoritarian thing. It's like, I am an individual, I have these rights, the, the greatest fulfilment of my life is me as an individual, the state should be in service of my individuality. But then when we look at the commentary around how people are experiencing the movement, it seems like a lot of what they're appreciating about is actually its collectivism. Mm. And I think that is fascinating. Mm. And to me, that's that speaks to not an individualist movement, but an alienated movement who've latched on to individualism because they don't know what else to do. And when they when when some form of spontaneous um community emerges around that it turns out the community is more important than whatever the hell they were there for in the first place and with i think that came through quite strongly in the um sort of embedded um, observations that we were that we were seeing and i think that's partly why there was the reluctance to disband i don't think it was because they'd gone i'm a sovereign citizen and i deserve this patch of land it was like i've got really good friends here and we had cleaning rosters and Mm. and pulled food and a medical tent and i feel like this is going to look after me and to me that's that's the thing to unpack and Mm. that's the thing to understand why it took uh you know a quasi-fascist movement Mm. um and a bunch of cookers and sausages to create an environment for these people that they clearly yearn for that seems like a deep failing of everyone really that they had to get it in that way Mm. Um, I just want to pick up on what you said about uh, the relationship between individualism, I suppose, and um, the way that uh, the failings of an individualist society often seem to give way into a kind of organic um, collective behavior. Um, that's really interesting. It reminds me of, um, I think his name's Spencer Leonard. He's an American Marxist historian of the American sort of, uh, what do you call it, radical liberal tradition, right? Um, and he talks about how any uh, revolution uh, against uh, the liberal order will ultimately be one that is, in a sense, inherently conservative in that it arises out of this questioning of the liberal promise that we can have individual prosperity that is regulated by uh, commodity markets and, and a demand for that first, a demand for like the promise to be fulfilled. And only once... It, that that questioning comes to a head in a realization that it can never be fulfilled because of the fundamental basis of profit, right? Yes, it's extractive. Um, which is that it's extractive. Um, only then can the nascent for collective formations that come out of a, that collective action of questioning and pushing uh, that those then come to be the new world that is built out of the rupture of the old. You know what I mean? Um, so I mean, it's a, it's not a it's not a crazy. Um, uh, new point. I mean, it's it's the point Marx and Engels make, and it's the point Lenin makes. But um, and Rosa Luxemburg and and many since. Um, but I think I really like the way that um, Spencer Leonard frames it in these particular terms about um, the crisis of capitalism also being a crisis of the liberal philosophical order. Yeah, not to get too too bookish about it. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> bang on as, as yeah. bang on as usual there, Jake. And and Amy, um, just picking up from what what you both said, um, 
if we talk about this as being um, the underlying political expressions of this has been around for some decades now around people's um, discomfort uh, I guess increased exploitation or, or feelings of perceived sort of being done wrong um, by by neoliberalism um, you what you were saying before Amy reminded me of a, a book that came out in the it, was, it must have been the late 90s it was called stiff do you remember that the Susan Faludi and what was fascinating like it was an interesting um, polemical she was making but one of the the key things in it which was a I really got a lot out of as a, as a you know a male you know socialist was literally making that point that there was a whole the boomer generations one of the, one of the ways to sort of understand them particularly the sort of the male reaction meanness that, that we, we sort of see there is a it's quite a strain sometimes um, it's like a child that thinks it's going to miss out on something and you know the fear of of missing out is the the FOMO sort of things and politically we see this sort of expressed sometimes of sort of just complete sometimes overreaction to to change or what's happening or feeling that that somehow they're more done hard done by than others but but lacking a sort of you know a coherency framework to actually sort of go well, actually I've, I've done I'm okay um, there are other people it's that lack because they've gone and swallowed the Kool-Aid about individualism and all they need to do is work hard and be a good you know person you know do what you're expected to do and then I'll get ahead and and then yeah you see like you know the, the small business people that have, that have failed we've seen in regional country towns where you know people put in their time you know the abattoirs get shut down the the biggest employers in a lot of regional towns these days are aged care facilities um you know that mix of stuff is what you see around regional australia and that that that's the ripe environment for why we have seen some of the people coming on into these protests i think mm. yeah ben i think you and i must be in our mind melt because i was just about to sort of take us in that direction as oh, well nice. <laughs> ben and i have known each other for a thousand years so it's not surprising that we should mind melt occasionally um, I was actually thinking about this almost from the from the point that you made, uh, Jacob, about um, sort of Cold War framings of communism. And I think sometimes it's just Cold War framing because things were better for blokes then. Like the, the and and I think if we like why this romanticism and this um, reversion to this really um, irrelevant binary understanding. Back of, when things made sense. Back when back when things made sense. And and so much of what you talk about, Ben, has to do with male identity as well. Um, and this this sort of particular expression of capitalism and, and liberalism and male identity um, is is what Susan Faludi was talking about mm. in in Stift. And so what does it mean when your economy is transitioning and that you can't work down a mine, but you could go work in an aged care centre, but that, that's that's girls' work, and so that's threatening to you. Um, you can't even get paid for that anymore. You can't even get paid for that. That's practically free labour. volunteer um, work. But I, I got the sense while watching this, sorry, zooming back, uh, I got the sense while watching this um, unfold and, and then sort of looking a little bit into the um, sovereign citizen stuff of how masculine it is that the most vocal um voices are men's voices that there's a lot of co-option and adoption of military imagery um <laughs> and um there are lots of women there but i feel like what they're talking about is quite different so i think the women were quite prominent in the canberra um 
incident um, around religion. So that's religion is the other thing that we haven't talked about. Right. There was a quite strong evangelical yeah. vibe, and the, and women seem to be quite prominent in that. And unsurprisingly, women were prominent in getting the whole thing organised and stopping people getting dysentery or whatever. But then when I was seeing a lot of sort of first-hand commentary of very alienated women, um, older women who are probably on the verge of being homeless, who have turned up with their pets, so I imagine maybe they, they you know, this is all that's going on in their lives, um, that they're extremely alienated and uh, um, precarious mm. but don't have a significant voice in what's going down here and i if there are any social science researchers out there listening to this i would love some analysis some first-hand account of how different people experienced that what was important to them what was frustrating to mm. them um because i i think there are some deeply gendered divisions that we could probably hear out of that and i and i think there's a particular aggro white guy, why isn't the world built for me anymore vibe that is just so damn palpable in, yeah. in what's in what's going down here. Um, and again, that's got nothing to do with COVID. Yeah. Um, we talked off mic about uh, how it, there, apparently there's a bit of an established pipeline between the family court system um, for men who have had judgments not go their way and feel that, you know, the, the system didn't represent them and they didn't, they weren't accorded, you know, natural justice, basically, um, who are embittered and cynical about the whole thing. Um, that that's a pretty big common entry point um, towards the pseudo legal argument stuff, um, and that's pretty. That I don't know rings true to me. Mm. Um, like, I think we can think about interactions with the legal system, the criminal legal system, as well as the um, civil legal system, as being the primary kind of catalyst for a lot of these people to then suddenly, um, yeah, seek new ways of conceiving of legal and state legitimacy, mm. you know. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention too, um, to your point about the gendered nature of it, there was a good illustration of this in, you guys might've seen it. There was a post that did the rounds because people were laughing at it, where um, there was one of the women who was prominent in running the camp um, put out a post trying to deal with, they had some sanitation issues. Um, so asking people to only use the toilet blocks for defecation purposes and uh, because people were apparently going going wherever they wanted. Um, there was a pink eye outbreak and um, asking people to um, slightly ironically wear masks in uh, when pre- preparing food. Um, there was a little point on there that I thought was illustrative of the point that you made about the gender divisions in the whole thing. Uh, which was something, just a brief note saying, like, can the four-wheel drive blokes please stop og- uh, ogling the yoga chicks? Um, and so you've probably got a lot of um, women, maybe they're into some, like, woo-woo, I'm imagining a certain kind of person, obviously. They're doing yoga in the camp, um, and they're probably from more of the Byron anti-vax side than they are from, the, the, New South Wales from the logistics industry side. Um, yeah, um, who are getting there and finding that they're being subjected to this leering male gaze. Um, uh, and it's probably the same leering, leering male gaze that's looking at Parliament and mm. saying, you know, that's for me. Or that they, these guys, that they front up to a line of cops and say, you serve us. You know, it's like a general conception of um, the nation, the state and uh, the woman as being existing kind of for the purpose of um, this uh, male subject. Yeah, I, I think... 
the difficulty with this yarn is that we can keep going and, and talking about the different groups and the you know matter. I think we've we've touched on a number of an explanation as to uh, where where this has come from and the, the the various expressions, rather than just going straight into sort of what you know is it going to go away in establishment organisations uh, you know who have who have hitched their tent with this stuff. Um, I want to just flip that in terms of talking about what the left can, le- if we can learn anything um, on the left. And I'm talking about, you know, socialists, people in the Greens, people in the Labor Party, but um, particularly for us as as democratic socialists, like what what we can learn from this. What can we learn from the flu? You know, the what's it? The flu Klux Klan. <laughs> yeah. Look, I, I love the expression, but one of the things that's made me really uncomfortable is it's it's some of the it's there's a there's a liberal and also look there are socialists that are blamed to us too you see it on twitter um it can be fun to make fun it is fun to make fun of your opponents mm. what's uncomfortable sometimes is when you actually start analyzing well who are these people and what actually where are they coming there doesn't it doesn't grate so well this idea of like trying to make them the other and yeah, or even I wanted, just to, to associate them directly with white supremacy, I think is yeah. we're missing the boat if we do that. Yeah, uh, I think we all agree on that. Um, uh, that there's certainly right opportunists all the way through it. Yeah, um, and that there probably should be a lot more left opportunists all the way through it. That's uh, right. And there aren't because we're foreclosing that possibility, which we can come to. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably one I want to explore with you guys is like, can we learn anything from mm. it? My my two cents is that I think we have to try to be as objective as possible, and then try to. Um, you know, understanding where people are trying to understand where they're coming from, but then applying a subjective argument, which is based on, you know, I guess on science and being rational as to how to engage with people um, and trying to, you know, um, connect with people that, that way. But they're not, obviously not our key audience because, you know, there are some people talk about this, well, there's only 3% of voters that will probably be, you know, fit into this. It's like, well, so what? Like, that's still enough people to disrupt things. We know that um, Clive Palmer disrupted um, electoral politics last time around with his crazy stuff. Um, so I think we can't, you know, as a left, we need to try to work out as, as to how we shouldn't just denigrate people as much as like, you know, and it's fun making someone the fun of people who said, you know, silly, you know, only informed things. But um, it's not necessarily going to improve things if Certainly we not productive. Um, feel, you know, superior to other people who might actually be, you know, some like the fact is. Um, capitalism does really terrible things to people, and um, there are, there are people we know there are people who have yeah had pretty <coughs> tough lives that found themselves turning towards that. And actually, isn't that the, the problem of the left that we what at, what we stay in ghettos and particular metropolitan places? We've talked about New South Wales Labor, for example, incapable of actually finding local candidates and regional centres. You know, is it any great surprise <coughs> that mainstream parties are incapable of? Um, engaging with these people? Ben, I think, excellent question. Um, my first thing is, is to wrap up your, your point there. That we just need to take our judgy pants off, I think. Um, I don't think they're serving us uh, at all. Um, and I agree. I think framing this as this is only 3% of people, I'm not convinced that's true. Um, and I'm not convinced that's a contained 3%, even if it is 3%. And so I think there's a deep question here, which is, why are we not why do we lack apparently a channel to to speak to the you know hopes and aspirations and frustrations and fears of of these people what what is it about what we're saying that doesn't have traction there um and I, I i agree i think there's a real uh accessibility issue in how we how we frame things and i think it's pr- probably elitist actually i think sometimes we're a bit um 
you know, full of ourselves. Um, and, and it's too easy for us to dismiss, um, to dismiss these people as a hopeless case or, or a lost case. And I think all we do when we do that is um, offer them up for, you know, fascists and right-wing mm-hmm. extremists and other forms of exploitation. Clive Palmer, for instance. So I, I really think that we need to be starting as a, you know, as a left, as progressives, starting from a position... That, that we do have shared interests. Um, I think as progressives, we need to have the, the equity and interests of everyone in our community as our interests. I don't think we can decide that those, those are the interests that, that, that aren't our problem. Um, and I think if we start with that, that then helps us think about how are we framing things? Who are we engaging with? Um, what investment are we making in trying to understand the source of um, the source of this frustration and uh, and fear and anxiety and I think you know for me there's a there's a broader picture is it as at some point do we need to think differently about the tools we use electorally and politically and do we need to retire the tool of stoking fear because we're not we're not clean on that. Um, we've been part of that. Um, and, you know, the Greens will say that they're not and, and good on them, but the, I don't think the Greens are necessarily amazingly um, accessible in how they talk about um, talk about things. I think they've recently been running a campaign about state capture, and it's like no one knows what that means. What do, what do you mean by that? Why is that a problem for this person who has this deep anxiety and who feels the need to express it in this way? So I, I really feel like I'm rambling at this point, but I also really feel like we need to deeply understand hmm. and make the investment in deeply understanding um or this is we're just going to create um we're going to be part of recreating this yeah. this challenge yeah i really agree with everything you just said um so as far as to go back to to restart our kind of question here what can the left learn um for one thing i think we can use this recent sort of the the, the whole freedom convoy event to refine and reinforce our understandings of the utility and the meanings of protest and gathering and the way that those themselves are um, antidotes for atomization and alienation, which is, has been demonstrated to, our, to the left without even the left's involvement, which is kind of nice. Um, yeah, the second thing I think is that, like, and this is just echoes everything you just said, that the left can learn the most, I think, from examining its own reaction and its own debates in the last couple of weeks and how it tried to conceptualize um, what the Canadian and the Canberra and New Zealand um, examples, what what the meaning was and what the class basis was, uh, etc. I think that it points to a bit of an issue for me. There's a lot in the left at the moment who seem to conceive of the function of the left as a loose set of institutions, but not really, maybe loose associations and institutions as being a kind of sieve that we pour the whole working class into or the whole population into, or subpopulations, we pour the socioeconomic categories into in the hope that uh, what will be left behind is a kind of pure um, ideal working class that um, is unproblematic and exhibits all of the correct um, intersections of oppression, etc. Um, when in reality, what I would argue, the function of the left is to uh it's a it's a positive constitutive function to 
um, seek to build alliances between diverse aspects of the working class to create a, a self-conscious working class that, that is diverse, that is um, unified on the basis of universal experiences and collective universal interests. Um, so it's not about whittling away and finding the right working class that will then express the leftist project with all the authority and legitimacy of uh, its sort of class position and its um, like identitarian bona fides. It's about building something big that the left as a kind of political organize, organizing force can only ever be the, you know, the, the mortar, the, the binding structure of, um, and that ultimately needs to like seed uh, mm. energy and power to, you know, um, that's a, that's a really, yeah, important lesson I think that the left can learn and we need to stop, as you say, we have to take off our bossy, our, our bossy pants or judgy pants, judgy as pants. you said, yeah, mm. take off the judgy pants and try if, if we can to accept that capitalism gives rise to all of these um, morbid symptoms in terms of social psychology and individual psychology and that you've got to move past that to look at the material basis for resistance when it happens. We've already made the mistake, I'd say, uh, with with Brexit. The the left was so consumed with um, what this meant about the feelings inside those people and whether they were bad or good that it missed a huge opportunity to... Um, lead a resistance to the way that capital dominates people's lives um, and that it came and went mm. and uh, this in this case I'd say it was pretty low stakes in Canada and here um, and so it's okay we, we get practice runs and we learn and we improve uh, and we develop tactics from that um, but I'd say based on maybe we'll agree maybe we'll disagree on the staying power of this but um, it will re-coagulate into something else in mm. the next, in, in the near to medium term, and the left needs to be ready to have a constructive role in leading the working class. And at the moment, it's not taking one. Yeah, look, I think there's a key thing for us to remember, and maybe we need to get this pinned on a t-shirt, which is you can be an obnoxious dick and still have a legitimate gripe that is the business of the left to understand. Mm-hmm. Like. <laughs> That's it. Like yep. That's the message. But I, I also just wanted to um, sort of lay it next to what you've just said, um, Jacob, about sort of how we come about. And I think you've been you talked about sort of some specific campaign instances and bases. I think there's another thing that sort of sits alongside that. And I, and I confess that this comes from my um, sort of long term engagement in international affairs and, and, and development, which is is the role of the left or the ambition of the left also to build societies and communities that are resilient to those forces of darkness? Um, and they may, maybe there's a libertarian thing in there as well, but I think there's, you know, we've been having a conversation for a long time about, you know, increased disinformation, the rise of the right, um, the rise of authoritarian governments around the world. What's the role of the left? in building resilience to those because these you know brexit didn't come from nowhere the 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 protests um around the vaccine didn't come from nowhere trump didn't come from nowhere so why is it that that our community seem increasingly vulnerable to those to those sorts of movements and 
What I find fascinating is that um, we have these jolly old conversations, um, you know, in, in the Australian international sphere and in, in, our, in our aid programs talking about what we can do to help our neighbours resist the forces of illiberalism. And they're really cool things like investing in democratic institutions, investing in governance, um, front-loading and protecting human rights, uh, protecting free and um, independent media, and absolutely shocking addressing inequality mm. because and this is like this is the standard prescription for building resilience in communities um, and you often see these kind of conversations next to um, conversations about preventing violent extremism um, you know or preventing preventing the rise of authoritarian countries and it's a completely legitimate conversation to be having about brown countries right. <laughs> and we spend a lot of Australian aid um, in support of that and I'm on board with that I think th I think those are the right kinds of investments um, I think it's interesting that we struggle to have that conversation for ourselves in our own country um, but it also makes me wonder whether that's sort of part of what we need to be thinking about of the, uh, of the as the left sorry is about what's those broader ongoing investments and institutions and constructs that make us as a society more resilient to fuckery yeah I'm Amy and uh, spot on because it, it takes it back to the basics which is it, um, we need to connect with communities to fight for a fairer you know, education um, more information um, encouraging whether it's media or, or the um, connections with people that they're all key ways to encourage um, people to get a more of a sense of themselves and also um, a sense of having their own interest and self-emancipation in their own activities so it is fascinating we can look to the um yeah australian aid <laughs> as an example of like maybe we should be trying that in regional australia um that would probably be not a bad thing and i'm not talking about um the way in which the um, australian government for, for decades have been doing terrible things for remote indigenous communities but there is definitely a disconnect going on um, between how um some of those this um, alienated communities are dealt with and that takes us back to our popular topics of, of well okay political engagement um, we think people are um, providing spaces whether it's in the Labor Party or the Greens or the, the UMU movement that actually get out into workplaces building workplace power but also in the political sphere engaging with communities that don't have any organised expressions is are, are key things to actually help help um, shake things up also key ways to actually enable people to put up their ideas and identify what's wrong and then go and advocate for them um, because we know at the moment they're not being taken up by um, our you know our, our peak organizations terribly well um, I'd also just you know some of them for me is the the electoralism that um, the yes there's an election this year but what we're going to get from much of, from the Labor Party and the Greens and the union bosses is going to be just about you know yes we need to get rid of Morrison absolutely um, but what happens next and the whole point I think of politics is that you need to take the tools and the experiences and identify what's wrong and then take this go and go and do something with it and that's something that's I mean COVID I think kind of put a, a hold on protest movement in, the, in this country we had this amazing anti-climate change you know movement going on kicked off with by by children who had no collective memory of of having lost in 2003 when the iraq war happened 
Um, I think a big takeout for a lot of people, a lot of uh, a lot of people after the experience is basically that protest doesn't work. All we need to do is put the right union um, boss in the spot and run third party campaigning, or we just get the right candidate in, and you know somehow it's all going to be hunky dory. Then we get them in in 2007. Oh, what happened? No, not much changed at all in 2007. So my point is to lefties out there is that we actually need to redouble our efforts of walking with two feet that we need to do the extra parliamentary stuff mm. and engage in communities and workplaces as well as engage in, in the big P politics. So, um, you know, I think it's fascinating that people are relearning what a protest side is actually about, yeah. about collective decision-making mm. and all the rest of it. And they're all gobsmacked, like, well, what they're doing is communists. They're carrying on about communists. But it's like, well, yeah, but when was the last time the left in this country actually got together and had a big protest mm. camp or whatever? Like, I could probably... Uh, S11, the World Economic Forum, back mm-hmm. in 2000 that was fantastic um, there has been pro, you know but we're going back a long time yep. um, to, for those big examples so I think we need to go back and learn from our own history a little bit as well as um, engage more 100% Ben and I think what we can learn from what happened in Canberra over the last couple of weeks is that people want to engage in this way it's mm-hmm. actually sort of deeply grounding for them and connecting and and that it, it has something it has greater meaning for them than you know a letter writing campaign or, or handing out on election day so i think um and i say this as, as a long-term activist who's been you know in the site of protest fatigue that it's easy for us to go i cannot be fucked doing this anymore but what we i think what we saw in canberra was people wanting to be in that mass humanity and that there's there's something invigorating in that that people want and so let's just rem- remember that the next time yeah um so what do you guys think about the staying power of this we've talked about how incoherent it is um and you know it's total lack of real cohesion both i think on a social level and on a ideological level that's common amongst all of these sort of putatively right-wing flare-ups over the last few years i mean it, um so you, i think it's similar uh, with um, the January 6 quote unquote insurrection in the US um, that that's you know exhibited a real variance in levels of commitment and ideological understandings and social basis um, and that seems to be true in Canada at the moment as well I would say that it doesn't seem to be enough coherence for them to be sustainable on their own but I think anything's possible and I think it would take a charismatic ideologue to come in and and kind of create a single narrative out of all of these disparate narratives that these people are telling themselves um over the internet and i think uh you can sort of see like uh platform deplatforming seems to have still a really profound effect on their ability to organize and ability to tell a single story um so they're always going to be wrestling with both the state and with the big 10 companies that they rely on to be able to distribute information and coordinate themselves so there are some pretty i would say near insurmountable barriers at the moment to the formation of a coherent ideological narrative um, for them to be united around in the long term Um, i think at the moment it's likely to continue to um, fizzle on um, as a sort of general and yeah not very coherent reactionary kind of avenue for those who are alienated and disaffected with the current state of the the neoliberal order yeah look i i want to preface everything i say with the fact that i've been 100 percent wrong about this every single time so far (laughs) so like what the hell would i know um like i i didn't think the protest would be that big i didn't think they could sustain it in the way that they did already so i'm i'm already not 
Uh, I don't think I've got my finger on any kind of pulse. Um, but you know what? That's never stopped me having an opinion before. So here I go. Um, look, I I would be surprised if they could sustain this in any meaningful way. Um, and and mainly because because it's built on incoherent grievance. And this is a group of people or groups of people just willing to be grieved about a, a number of things. They're kind of grieved with each other is what is what I'm hearing. Um, I, I'm seeing a lot of commentary that if you if you are following the various kind of media channels, because, you know, what characterizes this movement is a willingness to upload everything in real time, which is super entertaining, is it was like Game of Thrones in Ugg Boots. Mm. Um, sorry, that was really snobby of me and I retract it. Well, it goes to like what I was saying about that it needs a charismatic leader, but at the moment There's the market one. is so flooded with these like incompetent live streamers mm. for that like who are all kind of vying for their own little patches in the attention economy yeah and it's not like january 6 and i wouldn't have put the inverted commas around insurrection that you use jacob i just come straight out and capital i insurrection i mean that was cl- that was clearly called for by in by trump they had a person they were getting behind there's no person they're getting behind mm. here they're getting yeah. behind to the extent that they're getting behind a person they're getting behind themselves um and you could see as this thing was going on and it was unorganized um that it was it's become fractious and so i do i do wonder whether that fractiousness is actually what will uh really dampen dampen this down um I suspect people are going to run out of interest or money. Um, we've demonstrated that Canberra is a difficult place to just plop yourself down in. Um, so I, my sense is not, not, not going to be sustained. But again, very wrong previously. So if I am wrong again, uh, I'm cool with that. Yeah, we're happy to be wrong when the facts change. Our well, I'd rather change. I'd rather be right in this instance yeah. <laughs> because, because you know uh, it was it was annoying. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just I, I get the sense that they're not there's not a common and this comes back to the thing that we started at the beginning. Mm. There's not a coherent they in this conversation, right? And and that's that's always a break on momentum. Yep, yep. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I I hope you're you're right, Amy. Um, well, well, I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, look, it is Canberra. Anything can happen. Normally doesn't. Uh, <laughs> I think that there's going to be rather practical uh, reactions by various state and territory governments that are actually going to, also going to take the bit of a wind out of the sails. And that will be, um, it looks very certain that probably in the next few weeks we're going to see the removal of compulsory mask wearing uh, inside um, venues and things like that is going to be a thing. I think we can um, expect them to take credit for that. Yeah, well, they probably they, they, they can, but I mean... In, so it's pretty. Mm. Yeah, it's obviously got more to do with government decisions, and I guess the other big lobby groups that want to see things open up more for the economy. They're not particularly interested in public health, but the um, the reason why I say that is is I, I don't know. I think some of the some of those things might take some of the wind out of the sails, and we've already um, there is um, a lot of commentary around that the the rather multitude of groups are um, becoming more and more fractious and the like from people watching it also like I, I think side topic concerning actually hearing of these stories of of i guess it activists out there really immersing themselves in to try to disrupt <laughs> the the you know the bad guys so the cookers mm-hmm. um makes me feel very uncomfortable um because on the one hand it's like yeah okay it's a form of activism but on the other hand it's like it goes back to the point of what's the best you know try and 
basically, you know, being responsible at our engagement and respectful about towards people mm. that we disagree with. Not yeah, of course, there's a you know there are key nutbags and opportunists and really horrible people that are um, you know thriving in that that little expression. But there are plenty of quite ordinary people that probably could be swayed. I I, yeah. I would think that um, I think the left, the far left, probably we sh- we should actually be swinging the old. Not I'm saying this is an anti, uh, this is a racist movement or a fascist movement. I think we should be looking at the practical um, bread and butter things without a bit of, you know, yep. the the destructive regulation of university education, the destruction of TAFE, the really practical things yep. of housing, uh, you know, social welfare, living wage, having a wage rise forever. You know, those, we need to swing that back is what we want to talk about and connect with, with um, those people, um, you know, a general message that you know around addressing those objective things i think and um i'm not saying okay we could keep an eye on them but i don't think we gain much um directly confronting them other than i guess trying to some engagement i guess because i, I i'm not i don't know i'm not i don't know what you think i mean i just i don't get the big feels that um trying the online disruption or even turning up i mean i, I was really i was outraged that they were going to um target the vaccination center at the australian institute of sport mining recovery action i'm going down there and i'll quite happily go and have it out with a couple of you boys no worries but uh you know then having thought about it going this is nuts they're not going to do that and they didn't and i I think at the moment um we don't need to worry so much about that stuff it's more you know we just got to focus back on our politics and engaging with with people yeah but i think you've raised a really important point about transparency and I confess I've struggled with that in this in this series of events. And Jake, the um, the Facebook post that you mentioned that mentioned the yoga girls, I've also seen posts that that was fake, um, oh, right. okay. and that that, that 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 was posted on their Facebook site, and they couldn't get it down. They had to shut the Facebook site down. I don't know which of those stories is true. Um, and so in in many of these scenarios, I'm kind of opting out of having a deep opinion either way because there's, there's so much obfuscation about what's actually um what's actually happening um and ben i was like you when i when there was a, an idea that they would uh, be disrupting vaccinations at the ais it it reminded me of um sort of the volunteer protests that you have around abortion clinics yeah. and providing yeah. safe access and going i will do that i've got no problem doing yeah, that i'm not going to confront that. you but i you know i'm not going to let a kid be intimidated by you and in the end they didn't do that mm. Um, but yeah I think that, that sort of direct confrontation I just, I just don't think it doesn't feel useful to me I feel like there's um, whatever we can do to engage and then diminish and like reduce the core support because I think at the core there's some fascist assholes right and you don't actually want to engage with them it's like you, you're going to be fascist assholes and then we're going to have some fairly significant issues with you but I think actually our primary objective should be to extract those people and and the drivers for those people who've just found a home there but who don't necessarily um align with it Mm -hmm. yeah well i reckon uh since we're we've just hit an hour maybe a good point to close on is um what should the left do if anything in canberra uh is it the 27th of march they're supposed to come back um, when that when that comes to pass, um, my view is that uh, I would definitely not like to see anyone um, associating themselves with the left go down there looking for either a shouting match or a bifo or something. 
that's extremely unproductive. Uh, what I would love to see is socialists, communists, people in the Labour Party and the Greens going down there, and union members as well, um, as union members, um, going down there and engaging in good faith and actually trying to find some point of commonality to build, start to build these um, notions of uh, collective interest and the universal experiences that lead us all to acute dissatisfaction with the state of the federal government and the state of our state and territory governments and with uh, the hold the capital has over our lives in general. So trying to have some conversations that maybe demystify some of the forces that are coming to bear on these people in their lives um, in a productive way. Like we get nowhere um, kind of like getting our black block gear and going down there and trying to um, have aggressive confrontations. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's if anything, that's what I'd like to see. Otherwise I say as well, uh, it wouldn't be such a bad thing to just leave them be if you don't want to get engaged productively. Um, yeah, the honking and Northbourne can get annoying, but uh, it's, I would say, fairly insignificant uh, inconvenience. Yeah, look, I don't live near to where they were. Um, I have family who do, and it was quite disruptive. Um, so I accept that there are different levels of kind of heightened reaction to these things, and mm. it's easy for me to adopt and ignore it kind of approach because I honestly did not come across them at all mm-hmm. um who knew that being too too poor to afford a house there would have its bonus mm-hmm. eventually um uh, look jake I, I jacob i like the idea of can we engage i don't have a huge amount of confidence mm-hmm. that we have the tools to know how to do that well um which is you know maybe that's the prescription that we take away for ourselves that we actually build our capacity to do that but you know we've got time to think about it between between now and then. I mean, you know I've got some sort of ideas around that as well. Um, there's part of me that would just like to go down there and say, hey, how about we just all protest for free rats? Like I mean, <laughs> that's an actual issue uh, that has an, an an ongoing impact on people's uh, cost of living. Um, that is the actual responsibility of the state to help fix that is related to COVID. Um, like use your powers for good instead of evil. I don't think that's likely either. So like I fall on the side of um, ignoring them, but I also, in our ignoring, I think we need to ignore them in a more thoughtful way, if that makes sense. Like it's it was fun for me to, you know, hang out on Twitter with some constitutional lawyers and, um, you know, make funny jokes about how Canberra's will take up arms if their book fair is banned. But I don't think it was that helpful. Um, and I, I think now in our ignoring, maybe we create our own parallel spaces to have conversations about how do we arrive here and, and sort of what are our plans going forward to be better at understanding um, the distress. There's obvious distress and surely it's our job to understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're all spot on. There's different angles, different emphasis, but I, I get, I think probably if you, for all our uh, friends out there and uh, comrades who frequent uh, venues in the inner north around the 27th of March, I, I, I think that's probably the, the space where you'd probably rather than rather than necessarily trying to have a confrontation with people, and sometimes they have been rather aggressive with with staff and stuff. There's actually an opportunity to engage. It's also an opportunity too if the engagement doesn't go very well to make it pretty clear that people aren't welcome um, if they're going to be aggressive and, and carry on. But that seems to be some like that. That might be probably you know rather practical way that people can do that. 
or find themselves in. Not that I'm saying they should, you know, <laughs> go and look for a fight down in the pub. But there seemed there was definitely they were definitely doing that. Uh, reported, you know, lots of reports of that going on. But I, I think it's kind of like I, I don't know. Um, I, I go on the line. I agree with Amy. Um, we ignore. Uh, and then look for opportunities to passively engage where it's possible. And then, you know, there's a line of tolerance for people's behaviour if they're having a crack at, uh, and a, you know, at someone who's just doing their job. Well, that's just not on. So, mm. you know, educate them. <laughs> Absolutely. And apply the, apply the standards of, of decorum yeah. that you would in your everyday life when you go down to the pub. You know, yeah, like yeah, you, yeah, wouldn't, right. you wouldn't cop a Canberran abusing a, a bartender if yeah. you were waiting in line behind them. I certainly yeah. wouldn't. Um, so you shouldn't. In any circumstance. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And just on your point, Ben, about not engaging in, in BIFO, um, I think that the, I, you know, the, the little kind of footnote on that that I would add is they seem to target the least powerful people they can find. Mm-hmm. Casual workers, women, young people, old people. So if you have more power than someone you see being hassled, um, exercise your power in their protection it doesn't necessarily need to be confrontation with whoever's harassing them um but the your solidarity is with the person who's being targeted and so let's i would be encouraging people to think about it in that way um you know in the same way we have conversations about bystander um reactions around racism and sexism i would encourage us to adopt a similar um uh, position in in relation to this if stupidity kicks off in the same way it did before Okay. Um, I'd like to thank our comrade and returning guest, Amy Haddad. Thank, thank you so you. much for being on again. Uh, yeah. It's been great to have you. I think it's been a great discussion. As always, you can find us on Patreon. Don't forget that. Uh, you can go there and you can you can help us out. Uh, at the moment, we are saving up for some new cables because one of the cables is really quiet and it's very annoying for me to do the sound. Uh, so uh, otherwise, you can help us out by going to your podcast platform and giving us a you know, a rating or uh, a nice review that helps us a lot, um, helps people find us. And you can engage with us on Twitter at uh, Dole Capital. Um, we're, we're there posting about the kinds of things that we talk about uh, on the show um, and more. Um, and with that, uh, that's the end of the show. We'll be back very soon. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs>